Uh, well, good morning again, and uh, as, I, as I just mentioned, um, this morning we're continuing uh, the, the topic that we, that we started last week, um, this short series on judgment and hell, and you, uh, if you weren't here with us last week, we kind of laid some really important foundation. We just talked about judgment in general, um, why this topic, this topic of judgment and is so important for us today. See, we live in a culture, uh, we live in, in this climate that says that while all of us are guilty of, of doing wrong things, uh, very few of us, if any of us, are actually guilty of condemnation. That our culture believes uh, not, not so much in justification by faith, which is what the Bible teaches, but instead in justification by death. What matters is that we simply die and our birthright, unless we do something completely awful with our lives, unless we do something really bad, heaven is our birthright. That we can be pretty much guaranteed heaven when we die. Of course, the Bible tells us something different. And last week, we looked at Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1. And as we were in these two chapters, we, we saw that, that all of us are liable to judgment. Heaven is actually not at all our birthright. Instead, condemnation is. Romans chapter 1 tells us that all of humanity is actually guilty of making three great exchanges in our lives. All of us have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols. In our lives, we are guilty, we are created to worship God, and instead of worshiping God, we, we run after other things, and we are guilty of worshiping those things. Romans 1 also tells us that we are guilty of making an exchange about the truth of God for, for lies about God, that we begin to create God in our own image, make him more palpable, more like us, so that way it is easier to swallow what God is like. And we also saw that all of us have made this exchange where we are called to obedience, we are called to, to holy living in exchange. We, instead, we've exchanged that for wicked living. And because of that, judgment is coming. And the only way that we are able to escape the coming judgment is through the work of Christ on our behalf. And, and that was our foundation last week, the, the fact that when we talk about judgment, when we talk about hell, we're, we're not talking primarily about people who are out there, but we're also talking about people like us. In fact, if we were to, to look at the, the doctrine of hell, as, as we're going to do this morning, I think there are, there are probably two primary reasons why we need to fix our eyes on such a terrible, such an uncomfortable topic. And I just want us to, to consider these two reasons as we approach this topic. The first reason why we turn our attention to this is because as we come to this increasing knowledge about the truth of hell, it should also proportionally increase the passion of our worship. As we grow to, to understand what hell is like, then we begin to more fully appreciate the incredible truth of what Christ has done. That until the Son of God came as a ransom for many, we, sons of disobedience, were far from God. And we, when we begin to fully grasp that truth. It leads us to, to more passionate worship for what God has done to save us. Second reason is also focused on this idea of worship. As we come to this increasing knowledge about, about hell, about the truth of hell, it also motivates us to see more people come to know Jesus. When we see the horror of what hell is actually like, then we'll be motivated to do whatever we can to help people go from, from death 
to life, from condemnation to co-heirs with Christ, from worshipers of self to worshipers of the one true king. And this is an uncomfortable topic. It's an uncomfortable topic for me. But the reason why we look at it is fundamentally is because we care about worship. We care about worship in our own lives, and we believe that God is worthy of the worship of all people. And so this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to turn our eyes to this uncomfortable topic, but instead of just sitting on one passage this morning like we normally do when we go through a book of the Bible, this morning we're just going to be looking at a number of texts. And as we're going to, uh, we're going to give ourselves a survey, an overview of what the Bible first says about the afterlife, and then second, what it says about hell. So um, we're going to look at seven truths revealed in the Bible this morning about hell. So the first one is this. Hell is a reality. Hell is a reality. Imagine that you are meeting up with someone, an old uh, friend, a non-Christian friend. Eventually things, uh, after you caught up and, and all that kind of stuff, eventually the conversation turns to things of faith. And as, as you may expect, suddenly you're met with this question. Well, I'm not a Christian. Do you actually believe in hell? Do you actually believe that I am going to hell? Now, how would you answer that question? That's a very hard question to answer, a very difficult question to answer, and it may surprise us as we look at the Bible, we start at the beginning of the Bible, and we consider what it tells us about the afterlife, we see that it gives us very little information at the beginning of the Bible. God creates everything good in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 3, things are marred by sin. God pronounces judgment upon his creation because they have rebelled against him, and one of the results of that judgment is death. One of the results of sin is death, both physical death and spiritual death. And as we look at Genesis 4 and 5, the, the key focus of those passages, and if you're familiar with them, those are genealogies, genealogy, name after name after name. But the primary focus, the primary theme of those chapters is death. As Paul describes it in the book of Romans, death reigns because of sin. But we also see very quickly in the Bible that, that not only is physical death a very real thing that we have to, to deal with, but also when we get to Genesis 6, the spiritual death is also a very real thing. The hearts of humanity are, are wicked, that, that we don't want to follow God, that we follow in our parents' footsteps of Adam and Eve in rebelling against God and his good creation. But the Bible doesn't give us all that much detail on the afterlife until centuries later. And over the course of, of the Bible's development, as book after book is written, we begin to see this reference to a place called Sheol. If you've read the Old Testament, you may have seen this word, and you're wondering, what on earth is Sheol? Older translations of the Bible, things like the King James Version, actually translate the word Sheol as hell. But that's not entirely accurate. Sheol is a, is a notoriously difficult concept for us to identify because sometimes it just refers to death. It's actually kind of like a euphemism sometime to, for, for death. So uh, today, sometimes we'll make these generic references to the grave. Like if I were to say, uh, my grandfather has gone down into the grave, that is not a, a statement from me about his eternal dwelling place. It's just a euphemism for death. It's just me saying, hey, you know what? My grandfather has died. He has passed away. So sometimes Sheol is just used in the exact same way. It's just a euphemism for death itself. But other times, Sheol can refer to this realm of the dead. It's not just a, a euphemism, but instead it's a place where the dead are conscious. It's a place where the dead are aware. 
But even more confusing, sometimes when we look at Sheol, sometimes it's just this generic reference to the place where everyone goes after they die. But then other times, we see that it is a place where only the wicked go when they die. So we look at Psalm 31, and we see that Sheol uses this curse where the psalmist says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call on you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol, to this place of the dead. But then we get to Psalm 49, another place, and we, we see this slightly different picture. It says this, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So how is it that Sheol can be this place where both uh, the cursed live, but also a place where God will one day rescue, ransom those who are righteous? Does this unfortunately mean that, that if we are righteous, if we are found in Christ, then we are actually going to suffer in death until Christ comes and rescues us? Well, the answer, as we see, uh, is actually fully described in the, in the New Testament, this picture in the New Testament as well. Uh, before Christ goes to the cross, all of the dead go to Sheol, but within Sheol there are these two regions with this impassable gap in between the two of them, one for the righteous and then one also for the unrighteous. So we have a, a really, really powerful graphic. I mean, this is just top-notch right here uh, of what it looked like, right? All right, so imagine this giant circle. That's Sheol. That's the place where everyone who has died goes. But then there's also like two camps. There's a place on one side for the righteous, and then there's a place on the other side for the unrighteous, and many of you may actually, uh, when you see that, you may think of a, of a parable that Jesus tells in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16. He actually describes this view of the afterlife. It says this, Therefore, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was uh, laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember, what you, uh, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So Jesus is, in this parable, he, he's using this common imagery of the day, uh, which, which people oftentimes used to, to, when they were thinking of the, the afterlife, this place where some, the, the righteous like Lazarus lived, and, and some, the wicked like this rich man, go. But there's this impassable gap between the two of them. That There might be some sort of interaction, but this place like Abraham, where at Abraham's side, as Jesus says, uh, is, is impassable. For those who are in the other side, or in Hades, it is, is it's, uh, said in this text. And for centuries, this is the view of the afterlife for the Jewish people, according to the Bible. It was a place where, where everyone went, but for those who are righteous and for those who are unrighteous, very, very different circumstances were met by those people. But even that wasn't enough for God. Because remember how God creates us, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates us as physical beings. 
He doesn't create us as disembodied spirits. And so he never intends for even those who are righteous to live at Abraham's side, to to experience this rest, to experience this peace, to experience this paradise. Even this place, God says, that's not good enough. That's not your final resting place. Now, in the New Testament, and we've kind of already alluded to this in Luke chapter 16, uh, everyone started to, instead of speaking Hebrew, they began to speak Greek. And, And they decided to to use the Greek word to describe Sheol, which uh, they started translating as Hades. And so if you see Hades in the New Testament, it is is not uh, hell. It is is actually just uh, another reference to this place called Sheol. But, But even more than that, in the New Testament, we see this new development of our understanding of the afterlife. Christ dies and is resurrected, and it appears that... Uh, the righteous side of, of Sheol, the righteous side of Hades, is at Christ's death, it's emptied, and, and it's brought to be in heaven with him. And I say this word appears because this is just the conclusion of a variety of biblical texts. It's not, it's not explicit in any one text. So let, let's walk through this. To, to start, what we see in the New Testament is when Jesus dies and is resurrected and then he ascends to heaven We see that Jesus is seated in the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Places like Ephesians chapter 1 tell us that even now Christ is seated in the heavenly places with God the Father. Now, notice what one of Paul's primary hopes is in the book of Philippians. He says this, I am hard-pressed between the two, whether in the two here is should I live or should I die. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. His, his desire isn't to, to die and then to go to Sheol and, and wait, uh, have this rest for God to come and rescue him. His, instead, his desire is to depart and be with Christ. Paul has this unwavering confidence that the best thing that he could ever possibly experience is to be united with Christ in heaven. It's not to go to Sheol. It's not to, to be at this place by Abraham's side. And so how do we reconcile these two things? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what took place at the crucifixion. It says this, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So what seems to be taking place here is that after the crucifixion, Jesus goes to Sheol and Hades, and, and he raids the, that place, and he brings all of the righteous people with him to live with him in heaven forever. And now, what the, the graphic that you know, was super well done, uh, that graphic doesn't count anymore because it's different now that Christ has risen from the grave. Now it appears that Sheol and Hades is this place where, where the unrighteous go, but the, but the righteous now go to be with God in heaven. The, the unrighteous wait for the final judgment in Revelation 20 in Sheol. Okay, so we've talked a lot about different things in the Bible. I've probably confused you so far, but we haven't, we haven't mentioned hell yet. So, so what is, is hell? Well, the Bible is progressively revealing these pictures of the afterlife. It's revealing to us what Sheol is like, what Hades is like. And then in the New Testament, Jesus uses this new term. And he begins to refer to this final resting place, not resting place, but this final place for for those who are judged, and it is a place called hell, or in Revelation 20, the lake of fire. And it might surprise us, but actually hell takes a very central place in Jesus' teaching. 
Jesus uses this very vivid word picture to describe hell, and it's this word Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was an actual place in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It was this valley just south of Jerusalem. It was this place that in the Old Testament became known for child sacrifice. It was where the wicked kings of Jerusalem would go and sacrifice their children uh, as, a, as an offering to these pagan gods. After that, one of the, uh, the righteous kings of Jerusalem said, well, we can't have that. And so he actually took this place, this place of child sacrifice, and he, he turned it into a garbage dump. He said, this is where we're going to bring all of our garbage from Jerusalem, and we're just going to throw it there. And, and this place, throughout the, the next generations, became known as a garbage dump. And so for its connection, Gehenna's connection to child sacrifice, it's associated with the wicked. And because it is this place of a, a, its role as a garbage dump, it actually um, becomes known as this awful place that you don't want to go. Um, as a garbage dump, um, I'll, I'll explain this. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was in Nicaragua and uh, was, was ministering in the city. And, and we left the, the city limits itself and we went to um, this location right on the fringes. And while we, when we got there, uh, we noticed there was some smoke going up uh, just a couple blocks away. And we asked, well, what is that? And they said, well, that's the, the garbage dump. And it was this place on the outskirts of the city where smoke was constantly coming up, where a fire was, was constantly going because the, the trash, the garbage was being consumed by this fire. It was this place of, of rot, uh, a place that, that the, the poorest of the poor lived. And when I, when I saw it, I, I thought, well, that's what Jesus had in mind when he thought of Gehenna. That's what Jesus had in mind, this, this parable of, of what hell is like, this, this microcosm to, to describe this awfulness of this fate. And so Jesus uses this word to refer to the coming condemnation, the coming uh, judgment, and he uses it more than anyone else in the entire Bible. Jesus speaks of hell in, in, in such a matter-of-fact way, and the way that he speaks about it, he just assumes its existence. He, he assumes its awfulness. And it wouldn't be too much for us to say that, that Jesus, as he's teaching, he speaks so plainly, he speaks so openly about hell because first, he knows it's real. Second, he doesn't want anyone to go there. And third, because it's central to his reason for coming. He's come so that no one would have to go to hell. And contrary to what our cultural instincts may say, which casts doubt on the reality of, of hell, the Bible paints a, a very different picture. It's one that it just assumes it's real. Jesus himself assumes that this is a real place, a place that you want to avoid. So that's our, our first focus here, or our first truth this morning. Hell is a reality. Second one is this. The, the Bible describes hell as a place of punishment. It describes hell as a place of punishment. This is a theme that runs throughout uh, the entire New Testament. Every single New Testament author uh, refers to, to hell um, as a place of, of punishment uh, for disobedience against God's righteous and holy rule in our lives. So consider a famous parable, Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus is judging all of humanity uh, for their obedience or their lack thereof uh, to, to the heart of God. It says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger 
and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they answered, then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what is it that causes one to be thrown into this eternal fire? Well, according to this passage, it's a a lack of concern for the things that concern the heart of God. In other words, uh, judgment is coming for a lack of obedience to God's word. Now, as I mentioned, this theme of punishment runs throughout virtually every mention of hell in the Bible. According to the Bible, hell is the right and appropriate response to the sins of humanity apart from Christ. As we look at these other passages and the rest of our time together, just just see or notice how they all allude to punishment that God has for sin. So that's our our second truth. Not only does the New Testament uh, describe hell as a reality, it's also a place of punishment. Third is this, it also describes hell as a place of destruction, as a place of destruction. See, all of the New Testament authors refer to, to hell as this place of punishment, but all of them except for the Gospel of Mark refer to hell as a place of destruction. Consider Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now here's the vitally important question, and one we're going to look at a lot next week. What does the Bible mean when it says destruction? What does the Bible have in view when it's talking about destruction? And a lot of people will interpret the Bible's references to destruction as proof that those who die apart from Christ will cease to exist. And this is called um, annihilationism. It's this belief that if you die apart from Christ, your soul is simply annihilated. It disappears. It it is gone as a part of your punishment. And this is a compelling argument. Um, It's a compelling one because uh, if if you look at this from from our moral senses, it's hard for us to grasp how eternal punishment is a fair response from God for even the worst of sins in this life. So uh, what does the Bible mean when it talks about destruction in hell? Is this a place where the wicked are consumed and destroyed, just like a log is, is burned up and consumed and therefore ceases to exist. As I mentioned, we're going to look at this next week when we look at this topic of, is hell just? But just briefly consider the New Testament's picture of this destruction in Second Thessalonians. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you might be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, afflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in his his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you to you who believe. 
Now notice this passage. It focuses on punishment, but it also seems to focus on this idea of what type of punishment, this eternal destruction in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So here we see that this punishment isn't just a a one-time destruction. It's not an extinction, but it's eternal in its nature. What's more, it's further described as a continual removal from the presence of God and from his glory. Now, when the, when the New Testament speaks of destruction in hell, it, it, it refers to this ultimate loss of hope, that, that there's no chance of redemption. To use the imagery of, of Gehenna that we just talked about, it's to be thrown on the trash heap of eternity. All possible use is forfeit. One theologian describes it this way, after doing a, a significant amount of research on, on Every single time destruction is nuanced in the New Testament. He says this, Hell is a final and utter loss, ruin, or waste. Destruction is a graphic picture that those in hell have failed to embrace the meaning of life and have wasted it. Trying to find life in themselves and in sin, they have thus forfeited true life. Only ruin and garbage remains. Hell is this place of destruction, a place where there is no more a chance for redemption and no more a chance for repentance. All that remains is this wasted life, a a useless shell of what God intended for it to be when he created each and every one of us. Hell is this place of destruction. A fourth truth in the Bible, hell is a place of banishment. It's a place of banishment. Not only does Jesus describe hell as, as just punishment and a place of destruction and ruin, he also describes it as banishment. Consider his words of judgment at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Note, or not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, those who do, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hell is this place that exists outside of the kingdom of God. Believers are welcomed into God's kingdom, while the wicked are those who are banished from his kingdom. This is a theme that occurs multiple times in Jesus' parables. We see this a fair bit in our evangelical language concerning hell. Um, Many times uh, we will refer to uh, to hell as this place where we are separated from God. That there is a separation from God, and that's, that's true. Paul refers to, to that in 2 Thessalonians 1, we just read, where the wicked will be away from the presence of the Lord. They will be away from the glory of his might. So it, it certainly is this place of, of separation from God. But in another sense, describing hell as a separation from God, it doesn't grasp the full weight of this sentence. Separation from God could connote this passive ignoring from God, like, like a parent will sometimes just ignore the, the antics of a misbehaving child. Well, I'm just going to let them be. I'm just, I'm just going to ignore it. Banishment is instead this sentence that's handed down from God himself. It's to be cut off from God, sentenced to eternity without the joy of his presence. Jesus describes this banishment, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, he describes it as, as the outer darkness, this place that is far far removed from God. 
The emphasis here is on a removal from God's presence, not where God ignores the wicked in this out-of-sight, out-of-mind way, but instead an active rejection of those who have first rejected him. The Bible gives us a fifth truth about hell, one that we're like, oh, of course that's true. The Bible tells us hell is incomparably awful. It's incomparably awful. I mentioned earlier that Jesus follows this tradition that was uh, found in the, in the first century uh, to take this common word picture of Gehenna and use it to refer to the awfulness of hell. It's this place where the very word itself connotes wickedness. It's this place with this awful stench, this place with, with a never-ending fire. Gehenna, this, this valley, was a parable that was just a microcosm of the awfulness of hell. And Jesus oftentimes communicated the awfulness of hell, uh, not just through using the word picture Gehenna, but also uh, by using comparisons as well. So consider his words, Mark 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where, the worm, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now Jesus is using hyperbole here, but he's also making this statement about the, the awfulness of hell, isn't he? He's, he's saying, you know, this is a fate that is worse than being drowned in the sea. He says, this is a fate that is, is, is worse than the near unfathomable suffering uh, that comes from, from voluntarily chopping your, your hand off or, or pulling your eye out or chopping your, your, your foot off. He says, all of those things are, are better than the incomprehensible awfulness of hell. This is also seen in, in the response of those who are, are sent to such a place. A few moments ago, I, I referenced Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, where, where Jesus says that, that hell is this place of, of outer darkness. We also see in that passage that it is from the response of the people, it is a place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That this awfulness is so great that this place is filled with wailing. It is filled with grimacing from the people over their suffering. Hell is incomparably awful. So two more truths from the Bible. First uh, one is this. Hell is unending. It is unending. We're going to look at this again uh, next week, but it bears worth repeating here. Hell is a place of unending and eternal punishment. Consider the description in the book of Revelation. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, in case we just think that that's just referring to those who worship the beast, uh, a few chapters later in chapter 20. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he also was thrown into the lake of fire. In the Bible, the eternality of hell is always paralleled with the eternality of heaven. For Jesus, he, he, he describes it essentially 
can be summed up in Matthew chapter 25. We just read this um, earlier. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So if we find a way to, to get rid of the eternality of hell, it stands that we should also get rid of the eternality of heaven. But we'll, get on, we'll, we'll look at that more next week. This morning, just sufficient for us to, to recognize that hell is unending. One final truth, and I think this is probably the most important, because it's not just about gaining knowledge, but, but Jesus gives us all of this information about hell because he, he wants the response. He wants to motivate us. And the final one is this. Hell is nearly always coupled with a warning. It is nearly always coupled with a warning. Whenever Jesus mentions hell in the Gospels, he nearly always does so with an explicit or an implied warning. He he, he says hell is real. Hell is incomparably awful. And so do whatever you can in order to avoid it. And this is seen in many of the passages we've already looked at this morning. Parallel to Mark chapter 9 is found in Matthew chapter 5. That entire passage, it it talks about the fact that because hell is real, because hell is a punishment, because hell is destruction, because hell is is banishment, because hell is incomparably awful, because hell is is unending, all that isn't just something that that we file away, but it's supposed to, to motivate us. This place is real. This place is horrible. So do whatever you can in order to avoid it. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus uses hell, a fear of hell, as actually a motivation in the Bible. Now, I'll be the first to say it is not the primary source of motivation in the Bible. The the primary focus of the Bible is that we live lives of fruitfulness, that we live lives that honor God as a response of gratitude to this salvation that he has given us. But also Jesus says just because it isn't the primary motivation doesn't doesn't mean that sometimes we we can't use it as a a source of motivation. Consider his words in, in Matthew chapter 10 concerning obedience to his mission to spread the gospel. It says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, as we look at the Bible, there's this place. It's an important place. It's a, it's a crucial place for a healthy fear of God in the path of obedience. To actually fear God. To ask ourselves in the, in the quest for obedience, do, do I fear others more than God? Or do I fear God more than anyone else? Jesus asked this question, do you fear others more than God? What, what's the worst that they can do to you? What's the worst that God could do to you? You see, a fear of, of hell is ultimately a motivation Um, That's really just a a fear of God himself, this good, right, holy fear of God. And so we have to hold the the two sides of the coin in our our quest for obedience in our lives. We have to hold both sides in in intention, but but also in equality. We strive to to be like Christ, to live lives that bring him honor and, and glory, to bear fruit for his kingdom because of what he has done but also 
because we fear him. A smile on the face of our Lord should be our greatest joy. And a frown on the face of our Lord should be our greatest dread. And that's fear of God. So what does this doctrine of hell tell us? If there's just one source of application from this discussion, I think it's, it's simply this. It's do all that you can to avoid hell. Do all that you can to avoid hell. Give no quarter in your quest for obedience, in your quest to avoid hell. And that, that means obedience. Fear uh, of God is a healthy and good thing. But more broadly, fearing God without the cross isn't good enough. When we ask ourselves, do all that we can to avoid hell, the, the sobering, the, the terrifying reality about this sermon, when we take it in, in conjunction with last week, is that there is nothing that we can do on our own to avoid hell. That we all stand condemned. All of us are, are guilty of these three great exchanges, exchanging worship of God for the worship of idols, exchanging the truth of God for, for lies about God, exchanging obedient lives for wicked lives. And because of that, nothing can stay God's hand in punishment against the wicked of, wickedness of humanity, except for one thing, and that's the cross. Hell is horrible. There's no way around it. It makes me uncomfortable talking about this. If you've been here um, for a while, you know that this is not my favorite topic. This makes me uncomfortable. It, it probably makes you uncomfortable, and it, and it should make us uncomfortable. Hell is a, is a horrible place, but the reason why hell is a horrible place is because sin is a horrible, horrible act against God. One author describes it this way. He just says that there are two places in the Bible that describe the awfulness of sin in God's sight. One is, is hell. That describes how horrible and, and awful sin, rebellion against God is to him. But the other is the cross. That the Son of God, the perfectly obedient Son of God, laid down his life for us. He knew that we desperately needed a way to avoid hell, and there was nothing that we could do. And so as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Last week we saw that humanity is guilty of these three great exchanges that lead to condemnation. This week we see Another exchange, the most beautiful exchange imaginable, that the one who knew no sin took our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are in desperate need of a Savior And Jesus, we thank you for doing that for us, for taking our place, for exchanging your life for ours. 
and we ask that you would help us to live lives of obedience, out of gratitude, out of a holy fear for you. And for anyone here who doesn't know you, God, that they would turn and look upon the Son who made a way for them to, to, to avoid the punishment that we all deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.